thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So last week we've seen chapter, we studied chapter 16, which is known as the covenant between the pieces. Tonight we're going to look at chapter 17, which is the covenant in the flesh. This is uh, presumably one of the uh, central chapters in Genesis. It's a foundational chapter because much of our um, core belief derived from what happens here. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. And Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abraham, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations." And I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He that is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he that is born in your house and he that is bought with your money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant." And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover I will, be, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, 
Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, O oh, that Ishmael might live in thy sight. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. He shall be the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this season next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. And Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all the slaves born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he, has, when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money for a foreigner, from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Alright. This chapter can be split into four different pieces. Well, maybe this is not the right image I should be using right now. Let's just say we can consider the four parts of the chapter. And um, it's obviously entitled The Covenant in the Flesh, and I think you can all see why. Let's consider the first part. Abraham is to be the progenitor of numerous nations and of kings. His name is changed. This is verse 1 through 8. Then the law of circumcision is given in verses 9 through 14. Then, as a parallel to what we saw, Sarah now is to be the progenitrix of numerous nations and of kings. And her name is changed. So something happens to Abram, Allah is given. Something happens to Sarah, and the name is changed. And then, the law of circumcision is carried out. Clear, there's a four demarcation in the entire chapter. First of all, let's connect that with the previous chapter. It's been 13 years since that fateful day when Sarai decided that it was time to take action. So, a year later or so, Ishmael was born. And now Ishmael is supposed to be 12 years old. He's been with them for 12 years. As far as Abraham is concerned, this is his son who's 12 years old. He's not yet, yeah, he's 13, sorry, he's 13. So, but 13 years went by, well, it's, thir- all right, 12, 13, let's not debate. He's been, the, the point I'm trying to make is that this is his kid, and he's been really happy having Ishmael around for all these years. He was comfortable. The plan looked like it worked. As far as they were concerned, it seemed that they were doing God's will. God said, I'll give you a son. There was a son. And for 13 years, 
God said nothing otherwise. Oh, good question. As you notice, I was only focusing on Abraham. Okay. I left the Sarai-Hagar Sarai deal separately. I don't know, but one is probably bound to speculate that between the two of them, things may not be as clear-cut, and that Ishmael probably ended up with two moms to a certain degree. So, mom number one and mom number two. Okay, nothing is new under the sun. So, but as far as Abraham is concerned, everything was hunky-dory. Looked like the plan was there, things were flowing, he's got his kid, and here it is, 13 years later, God shows up and he messes up, he messes up everything for him. Again. So, you know, the, there is nothing more, in a, in a sense, there is nothing that could be more dangerous for us than to settle into complacency. We believe something, we live according to that belief, and God doesn't seem to contradict us. God doesn't say no. He doesn't say don't do it. Right? No thunder comes and, and you know, turns us into a uh, burned crisp or something. Nothing, nothing, sh- oh, sh- everything is fine. It looks like we are doing what God wants, when in fact we're not. And, and you know the, the story of the man who was uh, standing on top of a roof and uh, there was a big flood and he's praying fervently to God to come to his aid and, God, and the guy showed up with a boat and said, hey, hop in. He said, no, 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 God will take care of me. And the guy went away and the water kept on coming and climbing up and he's praying even more fervently and a chopper showed up, hey, come in, no, 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 God will take care of me. And the water kept on rising and rising and rising and he died. And he showed up before personal judgment and he's, comp- you know, God, I was praying, I was praying. Why didn't you send me a sign? Well, I didn't send you a sign. I sent you a boat and a chopper. What more do you need? Right? Sometimes you just want to see why we focus on our way. Here we go. Exhibit A. Focus on their way and look at the trouble they got in. You notice the difference in language this time, right? God had to be very explicit. Right? Your wife. Notice, your wife. What a slap. In the face. Your wife, Sarai, will bear you the child. Okay? No more, you know, business with bringing somebody else in the picture. That was not my plan. So why did, now, why did God wait 13 years? Because God will let us, right, will let us hang ourselves by a rope. That we are actually threading, right? He waited 13 years because fundamentally Abraham did not do his will and he didn't tell him he didn't do my will. He didn't say anything. He just let him be. And if you recall at one point I did mention to you that St. Uh, Saint, um, uh, Bonaventure stated that um, God's graces, God's acts of mercy are not infinite. For every person, there is only a finite number of acts of mercy he is willing to extend to somebody. And when this person does not respond, then God ceases to extend mercy, 
which means that this person is damned to hell and all he's doing is extending his punishment. Okay, well, here is a sort of an exhibit for that where you see God waiting. I mean, God knew this was not his plan. Why didn't he stop him in the first place? And why did he let him run with it for 13 years to get to a point of loving this kid really, 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 really deeply and then come and tell him, uh-uh, think about that. That is why it's so important that when we make plans, when we make decisions, I'm going to do this, and it's going to be this way. And we, we justify ourselves. You know, anytime you hear yourself justifying yourself, anytime you and I hear ourselves justifying ourselves, we are two inches away from hell. It's that simple. Yeah. Giving reasons why. Whether, whether we're right or wrong, it doesn't matter. When somebody says something to us, and the first thing that comes out of our mouths is justification. Why we did it this way. We're two inches away from hell. And we don't know it. Why? Because we are being blind to our own pride. Never mind whether we're right or wrong. Set that aside. We're just blind to our pride. Because what is speaking? Pride, not humility. What is speaking? Hardness of heart, not mercy. What is speaking? Foolishness, not wisdom. It's the other attitude. The one that says, well, hold on. Let me hear what this person is saying. Have I, have I heard it right? And even when we feel that we are in the right position, are we going to say it in such a way that we will not respond uh, abruptly? Right? We will be merciful in our response. We will be caring in our response. We will be careful in our response. Right? This is someone who is aware of his own faults. Right? So... It, these are little things that we do that are really, really, really important for us to pay attention to because this is where there's a big difference between somebody who's living the faith and somebody who just goes through the routine of the faith. We shouldn't defend ourselves as the first thing. Right? That's the principle. And this is what Christ tells us. Right? Somebody slaps you on the right, turn the left. That's what he means. He means take the time to think about what's going on, accept the reality of the other person instead of imposing your own or defending your own. Try to see things the way the other one sees them. In this particular covenant, Abraham hears words which we've heard before with Noah. Now, if you if we were to study the, the words of the covenant carefully, we would see that the same language that God used with Noah is now used with Abraham. Okay? Walk with, walk before me. Same words to Abraham as to Noah. This is how we started. Um, that was the first thing that uh, God tell, told him. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Same words that God used with Noah. So that is absolutely covenantal languages, language in its purest form. And you can see now the continuity with Noah. Whereas when he spoke about the Prior times, he didn't use that language. This is the time when he's going to really give him a covenant, and there's going to be one more time, which is very important, where God had come back and renew this covenant, and you know when, right? When um, uh, Abraham will be willing to sacrifice Isaac. And that's going to be really central. Yes. Ah. Pick up your shoes. Pick up your shoes. Pick up your shoes. You get it? Exactly. 
Yeah, no, no. Don't, don't, don't eat the cake now. You're going to have to wait. I said don't eat the cake. No, I don't want you to eat the cake. Don't eat the cake. You get it? I get it. Okay, the Bible, again, is not a compendium of God's truth sort of written in heaven and given to us in their purest and most, most um, you know, spiritual way. It's a father taking care of a wayward, stubborn, rebellious child. Of course he was. Of course he was. Now, he's also on the way to sanctity, but he was definitely rebellious. And to say otherwise would, would to sort of ignore or renege original sin. We are all rebellious. Who's not rebellious here? Raise your hand. just want to see it. It's just right. on a, on a... Some of us are more rebellious to others. But why the differences between, between us may seem big, they're really small compared to the holiness of God. So, put differently, seen from God's holiness, the difference between our rebellion is very, very small. Oh yeah, I mean this is these are the words of Saint Teresa of the little child Jesus, right? The difference between man and God is greater than the difference between zero and infinity. And the greatest amongst us, the greatest amongst us, presumably excluding our lady and Saint Joseph, have not left the rim of the zero. But very true. That this is why I said earlier, anytime we start defending ourselves, we're two inches away from hell, because we're really close. I mean, none of us is further from hell than maybe one foot. If we understood that, we understood the words of St. Paul, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We think we're miles away. And hell is sort of 60 miles deep and it's going to take... No. We're this close. We're constantly this close. Always this close. And I still always remember these words of Abbot Claude, who was a, uh, a, uh, the abbot of uh, Prince of Peace Abbey. I was talking to him one day. He was in his 90s, right? Everybody looked at him as a uh, man of great holiness and love of God. And he was talking to him and he looked at me and he said, If I persevere, I have it made. If I persevere, I have it made. Meaning, I'll get there. If I persevere, I'll get to heaven. Okay? He had no... Uh, doubt or no illusion about where he was. Many of us do. Spend our life thinking, oh, we're, we're, we're good, we're good people. We're good people. We have to be careful with that. Our, our uh, measuring rod isn't other human beings, because they're not going to be the one judging us. It is the holiness of Christ. That's by whom we're going to be measured. So, Interestingly enough, the covenant with Abraham does not refer to the whole earth in this case. It refers to a multitude of nations. And Abraham is often understood as father of multitude for this specific reason. Okay? But it's not the whole earth. Specific nations. And the fathers will see in that specifically the church. That there is a separation between those in and those out. And they had no... No qualm about that. Now, God also blesses Ishmael. Because why? On account of Abraham. Why does God, in, in this passage we just read, said, I have heard you, and Ishmael will be blessed. Remember? Abraham laughed and said, 
may Ishmael live before your face, right? And he said, no, Sarai will, will, will have your own son. Yet I have heard you, and I will bless Ishmael. Why does God bless Ishmael? Because Abraham must have asked him to. Okay, but why does God bless Ishmael when Abraham asked him to? Okay. Abraham loved him, yes, but that's not the real reason. Why? Because God was bound to. God put himself under a curse. Yes. I will bless those who bless you. Right? And Ishmael loves his father. And so God is bound to bless Ishmael by his own word, by the covenant that God put himself under. Pardon? Well, is God blessing him only because of that? That's a really interesting question because you might ask, why did God put himself under a curse in the first place if it wasn't for the fact that he loved him? Right? Loved Abraham and loved us through him. Obviously, it's God's love shining through the whole thing because God was under no obligation to do any of this stuff. The reason he's doing it is because he loves him. But once he said, I'm going to bless those who bless you, he carries it through. And he gives Ishmael a material blessing. Ishmael is blessed materially. He's going to have wealth, and he's going to have children, and he's going to have possession of land, but the covenant will be carried forward with Isaac, not Ishmael. And there we start to see the fundamental difference between the mission of Israel and the rest of the world. Israel was not to be a kingdom like other kingdoms. Israel was not to have a king like other kings. Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests. Israel was supposed to be a kingdom where God, where God was the king. And through the priesthood of Israel, the rest of the world would come to know the one true God. The mission of Israel. Israel was truly a missionary kingdom. That was the intent. But we know how the story went. Never happened that way. All right. In another way, we can look at it as a story of a man and his wife. It's a story of Abram and Sarai. He is named, renamed the father of multitude, and she is named Sarah, which means queen, because out of her, many kings will come. Right? If you think about it, if you now think about Sarah and Sarai and, and Abram, and you see what they've done in their lives, you can, you can say that, number one, they are people of faith. They listened to what God was telling them, and they were willing to take on um, that mission that God entrusted for them. So they left home, land, family, uh, a, a familiar surrounding security, and went into land that was not theirs. And then they went to Egypt, and really, in a sense, took a big risk, where she, I mean, he got, he, he was in danger of being killed, and she was in danger of being taken by Pharaoh. Imagine this kind of dissension must have created in their couple, in their relationship. And then after that, they made essentially a mistake, as we said last time, by bringing on Hagar and Ishmael. And here they are 13 years later, and God comes and reveals 
He reveals to them the real mission when he's 99 years old. Sometimes for a couple, the real purpose of their marriage is not revealed to them at the beginning, but at the end. Because in so doing, God allows the couple to struggle through life and demonstrate real faith. And then the revelation of their destiny becomes a crown instead of being a promise. And that's what he sets before us in this chapter. They lived, for the most part, a life that many might consider meaningless. Herding sheep and, you know, milking them, making cheese. If you think about the daily events of their lives, it must have been exactly like ours. No different. But every bit of it was there for a purpose. So that he and she are what? King and queen. And that particular reality is captured in the wedding celebration of the Eastern Rite churches. Where during a marriage, if you ever were to go to a Byzantine celebration or a Maronite or a Melkite or any of the Eastern Rites, you will see that they are both, the husband and wives are crowned. There are crowns on their heads. During, why? Because it goes back to this. The wedding, yes. In the wedding. During the wedding, right? During the wedding, the, yes. Yes, and the reason why they go around the altar three times is, number one, to celebrate the Trinity, and number two, to recapitulate that event. You see, there is much writing in this going around the altar three times. And the fundamental principle is that life is a sacrifice. If you're getting married understand that life is a sacrifice. So the outlook on marriage stems from what you see here, because later on, God is going to ask Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Life is a sacrifice. The purpose of marriage is to be a sacrifice. Of who? Yourselves. Understand the purpose of marriage. And so Father Nabil, our pastor priest, tells us that when he when he has a couple coming to him for, uh, for uh, preparation for marriage, he tells them that, yes, during the liturgy, we crown the husband and the wife, but in the Maronite rite, it's a crown of thorns that has flowered. It's this idea that the crown of thorns carries flowers. Is it literally a thorn crown? No, it's not. It's not. It's not a thorn crown. Thank, you know, no, it's not. It's not a thorn crown. But the intent behind it is to understand the purpose and meaning of married life. Which unfortunately these days is missed, is lost to many people. There are relationships obviously with chapter 16. We've talked about some of them. This is the covenant in the flesh, which has much in common with the covenant between the pieces of chapter 16. One might even say that in this specific case, there's going to be a separation, a physical separation of the flesh relating, resulting in two pieces, right? So there's this very profound significance to the act of circumcision, which is related back to chapter 16, where the pieces are broken into two and God passes between the pieces. So that the knife that is passing between the pieces is basically saying, 
may it happen to me as it happens to these pieces if I do not live by the covenant. That is why circumcision is the sign of the covenant. In chapter 16, we saw the pieces being separated into, into two, right? And God passed between them, and the understanding of this was, may it happen to me as it happens to those pieces if I do not abide by the covenant. Here, the sign of the covenant is circumcision. What is circumcision? It's cutting off the foreskin. So it's separating a piece of flesh from another piece of flesh. And the knife that cuts between them is the, is the sign, the seal of that covenant, because it goes through the flesh and essentially saying the one who's doing it saying may it happen to me as it happens to these pieces if I do not abide by the covenant notice how God inscribed the covenant in the flesh faith is never a spiritual thing as in separated from material things faith is never just a book or just me, you know, me praying to God in my, my place or by myself. Faith involves the body. Because the covenant is inscribed in the body. Jesus Christ did not save us with His divinity. Jesus Christ saved us with His humanity. Because it was His humanity that ended up on the cross. Not His divinity. Without a body, Jesus would not have been able to save us in this way, offer himself as a sacrifice. Therefore, our bodies are very important, and their purpose is to be an acceptable offering to God. I don't mean by that that we have to go all die martyrs, being tortured in, uh, in uh, various original ways. I simply mean that the, our bodies are not ours. Our bodies are not ours to dispose of. Our bodies are consecrated by baptism for the service of God. We are consecrated. We are set aside. In both chapters, we have a promise of numerous progeny, kids coming through. We talked about that last time. The difference here, though, that the promise now about the land is made to be an everlasting possession. And that's a very interesting notion. That the land would be an everlasting possession. And I suppose there are really two ways of looking at it. Way number one, the land today where the state of Israel exists belongs to the Jews because of this promise. That's way number one. And this is a common way that many Americans subscribe to. The land will be everlasting possession. And the, the other way to look at it is to understand it in the context of the covenant that was renewed by Jesus Christ. When Jesus came and renewed the covenant and made it into the everlasting covenant that will never be superseded by any other covenant, He effectively gave the entire earth to the true Israel. Go forth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Make disciples of all nations means turn the nations into disciples, not make disciples in the nations. In other words, make all disciples, make all nations be Catholic. That included also the nation of Israel. No, no exception there. Therefore, the entire earth really belongs to the Catholic Church. 
and to no one else. And the whole conflict that we have over there, over this piece of land, stems from people who do not live according to the new covenant, but live according to the old. And one might say that since they live according to the old covenant, the old covenant with its blessings, material, and curses, material, still governs. And you see the results. And it is a really and truly unfortunate that much of the, in a sense, if, if, the, if the American foreign policy was, was driven by Catholic thoughts and Catholic principles, we would have a very different result and a very different impact on the world. Instead, it's driven by a Protestant outlook, which tends to be aligned with the old covenant thinking, not the new. Because the Protestant thinking doesn't have a church. There is no realization of the new Israel. Materially speaking, it doesn't exist. It's really, truly tragic. The impact of Luther on the world is far greater than people really think. For one thing, you would understand the conflict between the Palestinian and the Israelites as a regular conflict where one should not favor one party over the other in a sort of unilateral fashion. Instead, one would seek to find a lasting peace between them that would be as just as possible. So there would not be any favoritism, basically? There would not be any favoritism. In the 19th century, in the United States, uh, there were what we call, um, well, I forgot the exact title, but there were Christians who petitioned the President of the United States asking him to create the State of Israel. Way before... Like in the 40s? No, no, no. In in, I'm sorry. In the 18th century. 18. Okay. Late 18th century. 19. So, you, yeah, you can... Yeah, no, no, no. In the 19th century. I was right. 1800s. Okay. In the 1800s. So they petitioned him to make Israel a state. There was no state of Israel to begin with, yeah. and they wanted a state of Israel there. Right? And it's also related to the fact that they are absolutely convinced that the day the temple of Jerusalem is rebuilt, then that will signal the coming of Christ. And obviously they're mistaken profoundly because the book of Revelation is not about the temple of Jerusalem, which has been destroyed. It's really about the church, the Catholic church. But because they don't have a Catholic church, nor do they understand it appropriately, they fall back into the only temple they could know of, which is the Temple of Jerusalem. And therefore, that's where you have a very strong support from many Christians here to rebuild the Temple of Jerusalem. Not so much because they really want the Jews to be able to worship there, but because of the conviction that once this happens, Jesus will come back. You can see when somebody tells you, oh, well, religion doesn't really matter. Religion is, you know, has no significant impact on the world. How, how mistaken they are. Profound differences in the world occur because of misunderstanding of the teaching on Scripture. Now, we saw that the name of Abraham has changed. Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah. The name changing um, is really related to power. Remember, God named things and they came to be. So when God changes the name of somebody, or when a, what is the God or a king changes the name of somebody, it indicates a change in power. Guess what? It might seem strange to us, but it's really not. We don't change names, but what we do? We change titles. 
Mr. Barack Obama, President Barack Obama. A change in title. So that concept should not be so strange to us that in that case, then you use titles. The name indicated your title, if you will. And therefore, a change in name is the same thing as a change in title for us. Yes. Ah, where, why does the last name change in marriage? Very simple. A man and a woman shall come together and become one flesh. Right? Right? And the head of the family is the man. Therefore, for this reason, the name of the family is the name of the head. And to indicate unity, the name of the woman is no longer the name of her father, but rather the name of her husband. But it is not because the name of the man is better than the name of the woman. Okay? In my case, I would have preferred to have my wife's last name rather than mine. It's easier. But that's not how we do it. We do it because there is a profound truth that God wishes to convey for us, which is that in a household, the man, at the end of the day, is going to be responsible for all of his family before God. You understand? Good question. Interestingly enough, if you, if you survey the ancient, the history of the ancient world, you will not find a parallelism to this text where you have, coven, you know, you have a people covenanting with God. It really doesn't happen anywhere else as in Scripture, which is very interesting. Gods, like for instance in the Greek mythology, are willing to bestow favors on humans. But never will you find in all of the Greek mythology or the Roman mythology or any other mythologies a text that suggests that the God enters into a covenant and an everlasting covenant with a human. Yes. But even when they cared to the degree that they did, it was never that of a covenant. Now you understand that in a covenant there are two parties. There's the strong party. And as the party that can do absolutely nothing, the weak party. This is not an agreement between equals. No, there's no equality here. There's one who has, who has the say, and there's one who says nothing. That's, that's how a covenant works. And if you're thinking about marriage, the strong party is not the man, it's God. Both men and women are entering into a covenant with God for their marriage. Circumcision was practiced widely in the ancient Near East. This is not new. Um, but it was only used by the Israelites moving forward as a sign of a covenant or as a community. No one else did. And it's sort of, in, I mean, there, there's a whole history behind circumcision but we're not going to go through it. The point I want to make right now is that, and it's very important, God specified that by the eighth day you should circumcise. The reason why it's the eighth day, well, the natural reason why it's the eighth day is because it's only to high um, 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 mortality among infants. High infant mortality. Right? Babies would not survive most of the time in those times. So waiting to the eighth day is waiting for the baby to have a chance to survive before you actually um, 
um, go ahead and, and, uh, and perform this covenant, which is very, very interesting, it's very really revealing. It means that if a baby dies before the eighth day, he is not part of God's covenant. No, the girls are immediately inserted into the covenant. Why is that? Because, because by, the, by the fact that their father is in the covenant, they enter into the covenant. But the boys must be circumcised in order to enter into the covenant. It's not that difficult. It might seem strange or mysterious to us because we always try to come up with complicated answers. But if you always keep before your eyes the idea I gave you a little bit earlier, God is a father dealing with a wayward, stubborn, rebellious child, it becomes really easy to understand. What is God's purpose behind all of this after all? Does He really, really care about circumcision? I mean, if this was the case, why didn't He create all men circumcised to begin with? He could have done that. Right? And does he really care about that? No, he doesn't. So it's not for him, it's for us. What do we get out of this? What happens when somebody's circumcised? Painful. <laughs> yeah, which actually makes us all wonder, how did Abraham, after his little conversation with God, go back to his guys, a whole bunch of them, and said, guys, I've got some good news and got some bad news. And it's all wrapped up, wrapped up in one. And if you want to know what it is, meet me in the tent. How did he do that? I mean, definitely this patriarch must have had such clout, such authority, and such devotion on the part of his men that they're willing to do this stuff. I mean, come on, it's, this is crazy. Yeah, ouch, big ouch. And if you're nine years old, triple big ouch. And you're going to wonder, did he do it himself? I mean, did he have a good eyesight? Never mind, but anyhow, you know. When you really start thinking about it, Right? Right? I mean, what, what did they do? Did they go and find somebody who specializes in this? There's like a store that says, you know, circumc- circumciser for rent. You know? $10 an hour or something. I mean, how, how, how did they do it? And while it might seem strange to ask these questions, but the truth of the matter is, it is in these questions that much of the truth lies. In very simple, basic questions. How did he do it? How did he make them do it? It was painful. So what does that suggest? If it's painful. Exactly. But now take it one step further. Who do they have to trust? Yes. God. God. So remember this business of, you know, sort of benefit. What am I getting out of it? Remember we talked about that last time? We said God is going to increase Abraham's glory by giving him all these, you know, all these kids. As, num- as numerous as the stars. And we said, what, what would he care when he's dead? And that's because in heaven, your, your glory keeps on increasing, right? So in this specific instance, they will get something for the pain. Right? Here's some pain, and we're getting something. What is it? The blessing. So what God's blessing. See? This is a very interesting question. What happens to them? Obviously, this covenant is still a natural covenant, if you notice. The blessings are natural. I'll give you lots of kids. I'll give you the land for you to own forever. This is not yet a spiritual covenant, indicating that whether you're, you're circumcised or not circumcised, you still fall within the general space of those who cannot enter heaven because the, the, the door is closed. It's still a natural covenant. You understand that? This is not about eternal salvation here. This is still a natural covenant. 
This is a preparation for the real thing. In the fundamental sense, it doesn't. But since the old, according to the four senses of Scripture, this is pointing to the new, you understand why the church stands by where, where, where she stands when she says that babies, unbaptized children, as far as we can tell, do not go to heaven. If the covenant was absolutely necessary for them to be incorporated in the family of God on a natural level, so much more is, is the case with the supernatural covenant that changes our nature. Baptism is absolutely required. We cannot go around it. No. I, don't, I, I, I doubt that they were able to express it the way you just did. I don't think this was even on their mind at that time. Okay. Right? I don't know to what extent they were able to formulate the eternal truths. Because remember, we would not know about it if Jesus did not come and reveal it to us, right? But, fun, but yes, when we look at it now, looking backward, it wouldn't have mattered. Because in the Old Covenant, there was no salvation. The Old Covenant, even there under Moses, did not have the power to remit sins. The Old Covenant had the power to wash the guilt of the nation as a whole, but had no power to sanctify, to make saints. That came only with Jesus Christ. Is that why you look at Moses? Yes. Yes. That's why we don't invoke them as part of our litany of saints. Even though they're saints, but they're saints of the Old Covenant. So the right? saints of the Old Covenant. Uh, I, I have never heard a litany that we include that includes Moses and Elijah and... Yeah. Right? We have feast days, but not for all of them. Right? We don't have a feast day for Moses. right? We have a feast day for Elijah, but we don't have a feast day for Moses. So John the Baptist, obviously. But, uh, but, uh, but, not for, but not for David. Not for Jacob. Not for Isaac. Not for Abraham. We don't have feast days for them. Huh. Yeah, maybe the Carmel. But also in the East, we have a huge... Elijah is huge in the East. Yeah, we have. I mean, in Lebanon, we have a huge feast for him. Let me get back to you on that. No, 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 no. no. Maybe because he was a somebody in soul to heaven, but then why do we celebrate Enoch? Right? So I'll have to get back to you on that. Don't know. Good question. Now, God uses vehicles. Yes. So, I'll, uh, God uses vehicles that are common to the Near East while making those pronouncements. So the divine announcement of a son to be born is a common motive throughout the Near East. So, for instance, um, the announcement by the Canaanite deity El to King Dan that he would finally have a son in his old age in the Ugaritic story of Akhat. There are other examples found in a Hittite tale where the sun god tells Apu he will have a son, and in Mesopotamian literature where the god Shamash advises Etana, king of Kish, how to procure a son. Also, what is really interesting is the statement about Sarah, who is going to be mother of kings. That is really specific. Uh, and it indicates in a long survival of a line of great, well, of a successful line of kings. Okay, so what we'll do next time then is to come back and go through the text a little bit more carefully and hopefully we'll be able to jump into chapter 19 as well. So I recommend, uh, chapter 18, I recommend for next time read chapter 17, which I read to you today. As a homework assignment, you read chapter 17 and chapter 18. 
and there'll be a quiz. So you better read it. 17 and 18. Any last questions? All right. So why don't we finish with the word of prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.